If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Veil, starring Elizabeth Moss. FX's The Veil is an international spy thriller that follows two women as they play a deadly game of truth and lies on the road from Istanbul to Paris and London. One woman has a secret and the other has a mission to reveal it before thousands of lives are lost. FX's The Veil, now streaming only on Hulu. From a distance, we can look at the geopolitics and regional politics of the Second World War and say, well, of course, they wanted to fight against this great evil, but they're human beings. So they cared about what human beings care about, love, and they were sad if they missed people. So, you know, the letters they received from home, and it's interesting reading what doctors at the time say about it, what the censors say about it, these things really, really matter. Often, way more than what's going on on the battlefield. That was Jonathan Fennell, talking about the morale of the British Army during the Second World War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available in print and several digital formats all over the world. Find out more at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe or look out for us in your digital newsstand or app store. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. For today's episode, we've spoken to Jonathan Fennell, who's Senior Lecturer in Defence Studies at King's College London. His latest book explores the stories of British and Commonwealth soldiers during the Second World War. And this was the subject of his conversation with our Deputy Digital Editor, Eleanor Evans, when they met up recently at the Shrivenham Defence Academy. So today we're talking about your book called Fighting the People's War, the British and Commonwealth Armies in the Second World War. First of all, I wonder if we could start by talking about about the notion of people's war, as you mean it in this context. The Second World War holds a quite a special place in British history, doesn't it? Um, I think people look at it with a great sense of pride. Britain stood against the greatest tyranny ever faced. The argument goes it did so alone for an awful long time. 
and as such saved the Western world in this moment of profound crisis. Um, and so the war is often looked at through a rosy lens. It is a good war. It is a war where the people came together and in a united fashion fought with great energy. And the reward that they received as a consequence was a better life through welfare state and NHS, and some sort of a safety net for those who were less fortunate than others. So the narrative is a very positive one. War was a good war fought by a brave and united people, and we saved the world. And do you think that's a narrative that has is still in place kind of across the Commonwealth nations, or how do you think it differs? Well, it certainly um, holds strong in what we used to refer to as the dominions, such as Australia, South Africa, New Zealand, Canada, and um, I think much less so in India, um, which saw the war, the war in a very different light. And really the big narrative in Indian history is about independence and nationalism. And the war often doesn't get much um, attention at all in, in Indian history, history and historiography. So um, I think certainly in the kind of the white dominions, um, the war is very much seen, was seen um, as, as a good war, as a people's war. So with this book then, why did you choose to um, look at the history of the Second World War uh, in this way across co- uh, the Commonwealth nations rather than kind of the national histories that exist? Fear of failure. <laughs> so I, mean, it was, I was very lucky. Um, Cambridge asked me to write the book. And there are some super books on the British Army, on the Australian Army, South Africa. You get the idea. Um, and I didn't feel that there was a, a huge amount of space to better some of the existing literature. But I thought, let's look at it as a team and how ideas moved across um, the Commonwealth during war and whether the experience was similar or dissimilar. Um, and that just opened up a huge array of options um, uh, and access to a huge array of sources that hadn't been seen before. For whatever reason, um, in the British archives, um, a lot of stuff got destroyed. I don't know why, um, but destroyed it was. Um, But the Canadians and the New Zealanders and the South Africans, they kept everything. So you can get access to these wonderful documents um, as relevant to the British experience as elsewhere um, by traveling the world. So I had great fun um, seeing the Commonwealth and getting stuck into some archives and finding some, some wonderful documents. And, and let's, let's face it, the armies were designed to fight as a team. And really, we ought to study them in that way. And when we do, we, we start to see a much more complex and I think, uh, hopefully, interesting history. Well, if we could talk about the formation of the Commonwealth Army then, because you, you just said they were kind of designed to fight as a team, but I think in your book that shows it wasn't always the case and that definitely changed. So what can you tell us about the Commonwealth Army structure at the start and then how it kind of changed as, as the conflict progressed? Sure. There's a wonderful new book, I have to just mention it, by Douglas Delaney um, called The Imperial Army Project. And his book outlines that um that development. I really would recommend it to any readers or listeners um, to have a look at it. Um, but broadly speaking, from the beginning of the 20th century, um, there was, I guess, a recognition that imperial defence required everybody to play a role. Um, and there was a development of shared ideas um, through letters, but also doctrine. So basically the military writes down simple processes that it can share to avoid having to learn anew every time it faces, it faces a problem. So the Commonwealth Army has developed a very similar set of understandings and processes um, to guide its fighting. And it developed a very similar set of technologies and weapons so that everybody was used to trying to deal with the same kit. 
So there was just a, a general recognition that the British peoples of the world would fight together and that if that was going to happen, there was an attempt made to, to coordinate and to ensure that they did so effectively. Can we talk about the mobilisation of these forces? Because um, various countries introduced conscription or they had um, various challenges to address within their own nations. This was, for me, was one of the more fascinating parts parts of the book. And um, again, I think the the kind of the simple narrative of a people's war suggests that everybody went willingly to war. We kind of we jump back to 1914, this great excitement, we're fighting against the greatest evil that's ever existed, and the British peoples came together with great heart and determination. But when you start to look at the the figures, and there's quite a lot of number crunching in the book. If you're interested in numbers, there's plenty of it. Um, we see that people with a very strong relationship with Great Britain and people who had perhaps experienced a more benign 1930s, 1920s, were more inclined to fight. So the state of the home front translated into the extent of mobilization. So to put it, I guess, in in a straightforward way, English-speaking Canadians were more likely to join up than French-speaking Canadians because English-speaking Canadians had a very strong relationship with the mother country. And the same goes for English-speaking South Africans. You get the idea rather than um, Afrikaners. What we then find also is that a lot of people had a really rough 1930s, right? I mean, there was the Depression. There was the memory of the First World War. um, And people weren't too keen to go through that experience again um, unless there was something, you know, really clearly um, that was going to benefit them if if, if if they did. So we've, what I found was anyway, that um, there was real problems actually mobilizing um, the armies. And in some cases, um, the, the British and Commonwealth nations had to resort to conscription to get, to get numbers through the doors. So if, if we um, take that notion of a people's war, if you have soldiers then without kind of that clear ideology, that clear kind of belief, or, or they're you know, um, not as driven as we would have led to, been led to believe by previous accounts. Um, how did that uh, affect the so, early years of the conflict, 1940-42? So, I mean, Germany mobilises for war really much earlier than, than British and Commonwealth um, countries. And so when it comes to this major conflagration in 1940, you have a well-trained German armed forces with some very impressive kit, and they're coming up against um, a much less well-trained um, British and Commonwealth set of armies with, you know, not poor equipment, but perhaps not um, at the most sophisticated, um, and, and, and an army that is questioning what the whole thing's about. Um, Churchill, as yet, has not articulated a, a great vision for a post-war world that will benefit the ordinary soldier. So the result is um, fairly lackadaisical performance. Um, Again and again, from France to Crete to Greece to North Africa to Singapore, there's this really consistent narrative that comes out of operational reports and commanders' reports. Our boys won't stick it. Um, You know, Churchill's pulling his hair out at home. Why won't our boys fight in the way that they did in the First World War? And so... This, I mean, it's it's not entirely an issue of morale. It's very much also an issue of training. If you're not prepared, it's hard to, to do really sophisticated things in a battlefield. But there's no doubt that there's, there's kind of a hope that in spite of other limitations, the sheer gutsiness of the British race of peace pools and its associated imperial manpower or whatever, will, will fight it out and make a difference. It doesn't happen. 
and and Churchill is fairly upset by the whole experience. So there's there's really a requirement to fundamentally change everything. How are we going to win with a poorly trained army um, that doesn't seem to be very highly motivated? And so you get, you know, come at the hour, come at the man. I know Montgomery is a divisive character. Um, I'm certainly no Montgomery apologist. I can, I can see many of his weaknesses. But what he does do in 1942 when he rocks up in the North African desert, this moment of crisis at Eighth Army, is he's, he, he, he identifies the character of the problem he's faced with. And he gets it clear. And so he decides, well, we can't do really sophisticated things with a poorly trained, under-motivated armed forces or army. So he, he reins it in. So British kind of doctrine, the way the British army thinks about fighting was, it was very dynamic and mobile in the early years of the war. He says, we can't do that anymore. We have to rein it in. We're going to fight in a very structured, systematic manner. We're going to use the vast amounts of artillery we now have available by 1942, and we're going to blast um, the lights out of out of the enemy. And broadly speaking, you know that works at Alamein. Um, if you can picture it at Alamein, you know um, October, November 1942. Before Alamein, there was no victory. Uh, you know, only defeats after there was only victories, kind of stuff. The problem with this new this new combat technique, although it worked in the specific context of El Alamein, where there was very little room for maneuver, when you get into the space of the desert further west, or when you when the Allies advanced into Sicily, where there was very mountainous terrain, or they advanced into Italy, where they faced the same problems, artillery couldn't dominate the battlefield in the same way. So there was a requirement to kind of return to the much more sophisticated um, tactical approaches of the early years. Um, infiltration and um, rapid movement. But the British Army still has a, a fairly lackadaisically motivated army and a fairly poorly trained army. And so really the second half of the war becomes this process of improving training over time and um, where possible addressing the soldiers' concerns about the meaning of the war through army education, which we've already talked about. It. And by 1944, 1945, it's starting to play dividends. And we might get into some of the more, more detail on that, but you've just, in, certainly in the West, right, you all of a sudden have a military instrument that is more impressive and can actually you know, have some serious, decisive victories. Well, what are the moments, the victories that kind of prove that? Um, sure. <laughs> Well, they're all kind of, I mean, they're all kind of post-Normandy in the West, okay? I mean, I know most of the, the literature, or an awful lot of the literature focuses on Normandy. It's still arguably um, a period of the war where the British Army really matters, where the Americans haven't completely taken over in terms of numbers and command, and you know, the Russians are still relatively far away in the East. Um, but it's really only on the kind of march into Germany in, in terms of what's going on in Northwest Europe, where... Um, the British and Commonwealth armies really start to pull it together. So after Normandy, um, Montgomery starts to get a little bit frustrated. So, you know, post-Alamein, he's reined it all in, developed what some scholars refer to as this colossal cracks methodology, which is, you know, you, you blast the, the living daylights out of your enemy. Um, but it doesn't produce the outcomes he expects. Britain needs um, to win the war quickly um, on the winning, and, and be seen to win the major uh, player in winning that war. Britain is you know, going hugely into debt as a consequence of every day that passes. Um, but colossal cracks will not provide that. So Montgomery after Normandy, he, he has a moment where he engages again with this military term doctrine, with the way the army is supposed to fight. 
and he he returns it in many ways to interwar early war understandings we must devolve command and control i.e let local people decide what to do trust them um, and we must return mobility, speed, maneuver, aggression to the battlefield, which is now possible because you have a highly trained and much better motivated armed army. And um, so it's quite a, you know, it's quite a gutsy thing, right, to change a winning team. And um, so he changed a losing team in, the, you know, the end of 1942 with positive results. He'd realized over time that that system no longer worked and he changed it again. Um, and so really on the kind of the final march into Germany, the crossing of the Rhine and, and kind of the mobile warfare um, as, as they advanced into Germany in 1945, you see a much more dynamic British army. And you see a very similar story in, in Italy where in the final months of the, of the war, the British and Commonwealth armies fight with mobility, aggression, no little professionalism. So there's a, there's a turnaround and I think an impressive one. I think the army in the end comes out okay from the story. You just mentioned there that um, Britain had to be seen to be winning the war and not be beholden to America. And how important was that notion of Britain winning the war important in propping up empire and how much did that succeed or fail? Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it, that Churchill says he he didn't become the the king's first minister to preside over the dissolution of the British Empire. And indeed, that is exactly what happened. Um, I mean, the, the key example that's usually given is the disaster at Singapore. Um, so a British and Commonwealth army that outnumbers its enemy, the Japanese Imperial Army, um, is soundly beaten um, and doesn't fight with the type of, I suppose, determination that you might associate with, with the Russian army um, in this period of the war with what the Americans were doing at Luzon, what, even what the Australians had, say, done at Tobruk and places like that. And it was... I mean, the language used at the time, so I'm not kind of an embarrassment and the worst defeat the British Empire ever faced, some have argued. And this, I mean, when you think about it, there was never, you know, lots of British soldiers policing the empire. It was always a small force that relied on um, local knowledge and perhaps a perception of power more so than real power. And when that perception of power was, you know, cut away from the knee, um, the logic of empire really fell, fell apart quite quickly. So the... The defeat of the British and Commonwealth armies in the Far East, um, and I'm not the first to make this argument by any means, was um, was a nail in the coffin of the empire. But that, the game wasn't over as such. Um, you know, a quick turnaround and all might be forgiven and the empire might yet live to fight another day. But the problem with the colossal cracks approach, as necessary as it was um, in North Africa at the end of 1942, it just doesn't produce fast results. It's an attritional way of fighting. And to, to, to right the wrongs, if that's the way you want to put it, of 1942, there has to be a quick turnaround and Britain can't do it like this. So the inability to quickly defeat the Germans in North Africa and Sicily and Italy, and in the same fashion, quickly turn things around in, in, in the jungles in the Far East, means that the war drags on and drags on and drags on. And Britain's... Central place in 1940 becomes um, a supporting act by 1945, and it's the Americans and the Russians who largely, who largely win the war. And so, whereas it was a, a British peace in 1918, um, in 1815, in 1945, it's an American and Russian peace, and Britain's place in the war, uh, Britain's place in the world is fundamentally undermined. 
And even once soldiers were were at war, they were involved in the combat, um, you found some really interesting um, things by looking at censorship summaries, um, which looks at, well, it allows you to look at the morale of soldiers and their politicisation as well. What can you tell us about those sources? Sure. I mean, it's every historian's dream, right, to find a set of sources that no one's really looked at. And it's even better when there's just loads of them. Um, So I found 925 of these censorship reports or summaries. And they're typically reports of about 20 pages long that are summarizing what soldiers are writing home about. And the 925 that I have are based, I think, on about 17 million letters. So we're getting this really representative sample of opinion and motivations and feelings throughout the war. And in many ways, I think that there's good a resource as, say, Gallup polls, you know, public opinion surveys um, in Britain during the war. And so this big cohort, this you know, significant cohort of young men, mostly, who are fighting in the war, we can get an idea of what they're thinking, how they're feeling, how they're experiencing the war. And it's quite radical, um, much to my amazement. Um, you know, you can't, I think the automatic assumption is that militaries are right-wing um, and conservative. Well, the exact opposite seems to come out of this, that they're dying to talk about politics for a start, So the apolitical British soldier that we often hear about in the literature doesn't appear to be a reality. Soldiers are talking about politics. They care about politics. They care about the world that's going to emerge post-war. And so they're crying out for something. And we might talk about this in due course. They don't necessarily get what they want. um, And that causes problems with morale. I wonder if we could talk about the process of censorship, Mm. Um, because I think it's just really interesting to know what what that process was, how these letters were kind of read and processed. Um, And then how, if if we can talk typically about it, how did typical soldier feel about about the process of censorship? I think he hated it most (laughs) of the time and felt that he was, um, he's having his personal world um, violated in some way. But I think there was also recognition that security mattered. I mean, if you're giving away secrets, um, it would cost lives. So there was this kind of dynamic, I suppose, at times it was deeply resented. At other times, it was recognized as a military necessity. So let's say you're a young fellow, you're 20 years of age, and you want to write to your wife or your girlfriend back home. Um, you write your letter. It's, some of them are censored by your commanding officer, which is tough to take because then he knows what's going on. Um, but each soldier had a certain number of letters that could be censored, censored centrally by, at the base where nobody knew his name. Um, so these censorship summaries were, were largely constructed um, by base censors who were looking at a vast number of letters, and then they were summarizing what was said and sending what they found off to unit commanders to say, oh, listen, there's a problem in your unit, there's too few cigarettes, or sending it off to welfare amenity uh, groups to, to try and address certain issues, or they were sending these reports back to commands in Delhi, in London, in, in Australia, New Zealand. So there's... They're really quite um, useful sources for for the military and thankfully also useful sources for the historian who's trying to recreate the experience of the the ordinary citizen soldier in a in a world war. Mm-hmm. And and so if, if previous uh, histories, historical uh, records have looked at kind of the, the top doubt, you know, if you've got records of Churchill, you've got, you know, what the generals were up to and all of the rest of it, just how how significant is this kind of the censorship summary that gives us a newer view of, of the, um, the, the civvies in the army? I think it's not surprising. I'll argue it's very significant, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, I mean, you, you can look at what's going on around us today. Um, ordinary people matter 
And when you think about you know, big ideas such as strategy, how states survive, um, we, we usually look at the past and the present through the lens of the great men and women, those who seem to have the power to construct and drive our universe. But I, I'm often shocked, I mean, probably you are too, when you look at politics today, how little control the great men and women really have over what happens. And um, you know, real people have agency. So, you know, you talk to the modern military about strategic privates or strategic corporals, the decision of, of one man or woman um, close to the enemy can have strategic effect. A point that I found really interesting in your book was um, the idea that the social history and the military history, they were very much um, codependent. So, for instance, a, a fracture maybe in the home front or the politics of the home front affecting morale of the men at war. So w- do you think that they're very codependent? It kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Like a young man is thinking about his people back home, his family, his loved ones. Um, you know, you know. I think from a distance, we can look at the geopolitics and regional politics of the Second World War and say, well, of course, they wanted to fight against this great evil. But they're human beings. So they cared about what human beings care about, love. Um, they were sad if they missed people. So, you know, the letters they received from home and it's interesting reading what doctors at the time say about it, what the censors say about it. These things really, really mattered. Often, way more than what's going on in the battlefield. That's other people's business, right? That's the great men's business to, to, to ensure that the battles are won to a degree. The thing I care about as a young soldier, am I going to see my wife again sometime soon? Are my, are my kids okay? Um, do my mum and dad have enough food to eat? Um, of course, that's the human experience. So the battlefront is intimately connected the home front. So what goes, happens on the home front can have really profound implications for winning and losing. Um, and that story becomes, I suppose, discoverable by virtue of the censorship summaries, because we can see they cared, and then we can see these fluctuations in morale, that there's problems at the same time as the problems on the home front. And I, I mean, so stuff I talked about in my, in my, in my first book um, on morale in the desert. So, you know, there's problems with South African morale, say, when things are going wrong in North Africa in 1942. And the censors are really quite attuned to this. And so they write a whole series of kind of special reports saying, you know, what's going wrong with our, with our guys in the desert? And they, they quote um, kind of these letters from wives and sweethearts um, to, the, to, to the front. And the, you know, the wives and sweethearts are having a really hard time. Um, think all things are not... Uh, Rosie on the South African home front. Um, those families that are without their breadwinners are struggling for food. And this is passed on to the soldiers of the front who feel that they've been let down very significantly by the home front and by the government. Um, you have examples where, you know, a wife is writing to, to, to her husband saying, you know, shoot yourself in the foot. I mean, find a way to get out, basically. Surrender if you have to. I need you to come back to me alive. Um, and the South African censors are saying, a, how could this not affect the morale of our soldiers at the front? And B, actually, it is affecting the morale of our soldiers at the front. And this has implications for combat performance. And, you know, the disasters in the desert in 1942 were caused by many, many reasons, some tactical problems, some technical problems, um, even leadership problems. But of those factors, I think we have to look at morale. And when we look at morale, we have to look at what's going on in the home front and how that fed through to the soldiers on the battlefront. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Um, so you already mentioned, you know, these kind of censorship summaries might affect maybe supply lines or decisions might be, t- may be taken. Um, but how did decision makers use these summaries to inform strategy, to inform um, other kind of key decision making? Or were they, were they used yeah, that way? Yeah, I mean, I suppose... They're certainly used very much on a local level. So I can give, say, give you an example in, in the middle of the Normandy campaign. Um, you know, a lot of stuff written on British Army in Normandy. Um, there's a sense of, uh, kind of mid-July that the troops are utterly exhausted. And this comes through in, in censorship reports. And so very quickly, senior commanders start to get welfare amenities to the continent. Um, so one week you have a letter saying, no one's had a shower in weeks, no one's had, you're running out of cigarettes, um, we need, no one has clean clothes. And then the following, and, and morale is terrible. And in the following week, you see they have all these things and morale is bounced back. So you do see this kind of, um, this dynamic interaction between command and, and the ordinary soldier. When the censorship summaries report that things are problematic, almost always about a week later or two weeks later, you see that that problem has been fixed in that unit. So there's, the, the, there's no doubt. Um, take Normandy as an example again, that, one of the things that they really tried to stress at the start of the Normandy campaign was to bring sensors over with the with the initial landings because the commanders wanted to know what the troops were experiencing um, and they recognised that morale mattered. So how do you assess morale? Well, get the sensors in their early doors. And in previous um, expeditionary operations, they hadn't done that and had felt that they'd kind of let things slip a little bit. So that, that kind of stuff, you know. Montgomery, Slim, you know, Wavell, these, these famous names, these great commanders, if you read their their theory, their their memoirs, they all say morale is everything, um, and they use the censorship summaries as a tool to, to help understand that, mm-hmm. that dynamic. Were they ever used as a political tool, or were they ever used um, kind of by political figures in any way? It's a very good question. I'm sure that some of the reports did get in front of politicians, but I can't. Nothing jumps mm-hmm. into my mind. Um, but it is interesting how political things are. I mean, the aspect of, um, I guess, of the of the military experience in the Second World War that is that was kind of most politicised or garnered most political attention was army education. Um, so midway through the war, Ronald Adam, you probably never heard of Ronald Adam, right? Astonishing man. Um, he was the adjutant general of, of the British army, which effectively means he was kind of in charge of HR. Um, he looked after the welfare, um, helped oversee selection. Um, so he was kind of looking after the morale of the, morale of the troops. And he recognises, along with many other senior officers, that there's this kind of ideological vacuum. The soldiers don't know what they're fighting for. So he says, well, we've got to do something about this. Um, so Cromwell said, give me a soldier who knows what he fights and knows what he knows. Um, so if we have a demotivated, if we have an army without ideological conviction, how are we supposed to win against the Germans who are, you know, very ideologically driven. So he brings in army education, which um, which kind of preaches this idea of a new Jerusalem, a new a new Britain. Fight for Britain now, and by gum, you'll get something in return once victory is achieved. 
Um, but the conservatives are a little bit nervous about this, understandably, if you understand conservative politics, making promises um, with money we don't know that we'll actually have. And so there's a concerted effort by Churchill and others to, to destroy army education. Um, and Adam and others are quite adept at um, avoiding that from happening. And army education, I think the censorship summary showed quite clearly, was um, appreciated by the troops. Army education played a very, I think, important role in he- helping the troops kind of articulate um, their political, kind of the emergence of political thought that happened as a consequence of their combat experience. So it teaches them the language and the mechanisms available to them to affect social change. So it plays a very important role, I think, and in many ways it did become politicised. I wondered if there were any, uh, what, what are the other examples of other countries within the Commonwealth, but their, their messaging, um, so what, you know, what was their kind of ideological impetus, I guess, for the war? Well, I mean, I mean, apart from the idea of kind of the British peoples stand against, stand together, that New Zealand, um, I guess, security, New Zealand's security, Australia's security was dependent upon the Royal Navy and, and Britain's and Britain's power. So, I mean, there's there's that kind of standard narrative of um, codependence, which in many ways actually gets destroyed as a consequence of the war, right? Because it becomes quite evident to Australia and New Zealand by 1942. Um, that Britain can't protect the Antipodes. And what does do they need? Well, they need a new protector, and that becomes the United States. And we get the United States being the dominant power in the second half of the 20th century. Um, but in terms of politicization, um, what is interesting, I mean, I managed to find voting statistics. So soldiers who are expected to fight for democracy get a chance to partake in it during the war as well. So in 1940, 1943, you have elections in Australia. In 1943, you have elections in New Zealand and South Africa. In 1945, you have elections in Canada and, as we well know, in the United Kingdom. And the dynamic seems to hold true across all these cases, that the closer to danger, I say combat, but danger will do, um, that these soldiers are during the war, the more left-leaning their vote tends to be. So... Um, New Zealand airmen taking great risks with their life over the skies of Europe in 1943 are more likely to vote for the New Zealand Labour Party than a New Zealander training in Canada to fly a plane or a New Zealander training back home in New Zealand um, to learn how to fight. So it's it's quite consistent. And I, and I guess it, it does appear to be a very consistent set of experiences across the Commonwealth, it just maybe varies in terms of intensity or some, some little stories here and there. And did you find that particularly surprising? I, I suppose, in a way, because so much of the history has become about national histories and it becomes siloed in these national histories and we are consumed by our own uniqueness. And Britain has kind of developed an identity separate from the Commonwealth and Empire today that perhaps wasn't the case in the 1940s. What are the events or kind of national story, national history that you think kind of cemented that that idea of Britain as the, the plucky kind of plucky? Sure, old. yeah. <laughs> I mean, the alone narrative, right, right in, right. in 1940, mm. standing against the white cliffs mm. of Dover, fist in the air, sure. take us if you can, Britain against the world. Um, I mean, the experience of the Blitz, um, which was undoubtedly utterly appalling. And, and, and the image of the Blitz has been a uniquely British experience. Um, 
when it comes to kind of the Western allies, I suppose, um, has created this image of, of a very unique experience that Britain, Britain went through. I mean, Australia, you know, doesn't really get the same treatment. New Zealand, South Africa, Canada, um, although India was invaded, it was in the Eastern provinces. Um, so I think in part, yes, the, the experience itself drives the way we talk about it now. You said that many of these political beliefs kind of emerged as a result of their experiences on the front line. So how did we see those materialise in, in post-war um, nations and societies? Sure. I mean, in different ways, right? Yeah. Um, so the closer to combat, the closer to danger, the more left-leaning the vote um, appears to be. And so, so why is that? I mean, the best kind of theory I can come up with to try and explain it is um, soldiers became deeply aware of how interconnected they all were. Um, if you're you know, lying in a slit trench, um, you, you become aware that the individual building weapons in, in Birmingham um, is, is of vital importance to your welfare, that the individual 20 metres away in another slit trench is vital importance to your welfare. So the kind of narrative of you know, individualism becomes problematic. It becomes very obvious that you rely on others for your, um, for your future and your well-being. Um, so those political parties that were best able to I guess, build a narrative that reflected that experience were more likely to garner soldiers' vote. Um, this, was, this was very powerfully experienced in, in 1945, where um, you know, the Labour you know, manifesto articulated a, a vision of a more equal, egalitarian, fairer society. You know, these key words, fairness, come through again and again in the censorship summaries. Um, and, and, and they were better able to tap into this kind of political moments that the soldiers were experiencing. And um, so it happened, you know, depending on your political perspectives in a, in a fairly positive way in the United Kingdom, Labour get in and indeed the welfare state that the soldier dreams about becomes a reality or close enough. And um, in South Africa, it's a very different dynamic. And um, the, the argument about fairness and egalitarianism becomes one that's shared between white South Africans. Um, and you know, so the Afrikaner and the English-speaking South African fight together on the front line. They recognise that their future is interconnected, um, but to achieve this interconnected, fairer world, there's a there's a fairly um, shocking added thing necessary, which is we have to exclude other members of society, Black South Africans. And so the experience of the front line creates a, a toxic political um, dynamic, which. Um, as, as far as the evidence um, suggests, influenced the way South African veterans voted in the apartheid election um, in 1948. Mm -hmm. So you you write that the the Indian Army um, it, it significantly changed from what it was at the start of the war to the end, and you say that that's almost uh, kind of. Um, that illustrates the extent of the transformation of the the entire Commonwealth forces, British Commonwealth forces. What what, what do you what do you mean by that? I mean, it's it's extraordinary, really, what the Indian Army was was able to do. Um, it expanded, I mean, greatly, kind of tenfold in the space of a number of years. Um, it had a, a you know, it was made up of you know young fellas who largely had almost no time for the British Empire, who were economic recruits. I.e., there wasn't much better going on in India at the time. Therefore, they felt like they had to they had to sign up. Um, the Indian Army is almost completely incompetent. I, I, in, in the early years of the war, 
maybe taking East Africa side, I mean, so the, the kind of expanded Indian army is, is fairly incompetent. I hope I'm not being totally unfair in saying that. Um, and yet by 1944, and certainly by 1945, the Indian army is a phenomenal fighting tool. So, I mean, the story of transformation here is, is quite impressive from an institutional military history perspective, rather than kind of all the social history. Here is an institution carrying out change at a rapid pace. So how does it, how does it do it, I guess, is, is an interesting story. Um, but, I mean, here we are in Shrivenham, the Defence Academy in the United Kingdom, and we talk about training all the time. Um, you know, we're educating senior officers here about warfare, but the way you convert ideas into meaningful practice is by practicing, by training. So the Indian Army quickly develops a, a new doctrine, that word again, right? A new way of fighting that it communicates um, throughout its, uh, its vast command. And they translate this new way of fighting, which is much more dynamic than what happens in the, in, in the West because you can't do colossal cracks in, in the jungle. You have to devolve command and control, i.e. you have to trust the local the young fella in the jungle to make decisions because you can't see five meters to your right or left. So it really becomes about um, speed and individual agency and motivation in the jungle in the way that it does in the desert, right? Um, so huge new training um, apparatus were put in place in India um, where soldiers were put into the jungle um, put through their, um, their paces taught how to survive, taught not to fear the, the noises of the jungle, um, empowered to make decisions by themselves. And by training, they, they managed to refine the ideas that were articulated in doctrine, and they became a really effective fighting force. So at Imphal and Kohima, I don't know if our, if our listeners would have heard of those battles, um, in the jungles of Burma, um, they were successful. And... They, they kind of inflicted one of the big defeats on the Japanese army. Um, and by 1945, after those serious successes, they um, advanced you know, hundreds of miles um, towards um, Rangoon in one of the most impressive military operations in the history of warfare. So to go from almost complete incompetence in 1942 to astonishing mobile warfare by 1945 is quite the story. Um, and I guess a story that any institution or company could read and take lessons from. How do you go from disaster? Well, it was yeah, defeat into victory, wasn't that Slim's um, biography? Uh, yeah, it's his book. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I guess it's a point worth reiterating. I know we vis visited it earlier, but that empowerment then uh, in tandem with that politicization, um, can we talk about that, that impact then? In the region? Yeah, so I mean, so the ordinary Indian soldier learns how to organize um, and develops a sense of self confidence. Um, and this matters then when the Great Partition takes place. So we, we're years after the war now, right? Um, India's gone from the empire, or it's about to go from the empire, and there's going to be two new states where the Indian Raj used to stand Pakistan and India. And for that to happen, um, there are two kind of key parts of the country that are going to be ripped apart or split in half, the Punjab and Bengal. Um, and especially the um, dynamic and um, destructive period in, in, the, in the history of the subcontinent. And you know, estimates vary in terms of how many people died during um, the bloodletting of this period. So 
there was a, a general desire, I think, to kind of change the arithmetic on the ground before this partition took place. And so there's a lot of violence as, you know, one side is trying to grab hold of certain places before to make it a reality in the ground so that it becomes either part of India or Pakistan. And then there's this fast movement of people um, from one side to the other so that, you know, Muslims move to Pakistan and, and Hindus um, move into this new Hindustan of, of, of India. What we find is a lot of these population movements were, um, were coordinated by veterans, veterans who developed organizational skill and confidence during the war. And where there were veterans present, um, these vast population movements were usually done more effectively and usually at a at less loss of life. So whereas kind of the experience of the war had politicized, you know, Australian, New Zealand, South African, um, and indeed Indian troops, it also developed a certain set of skills that allowed them to play, you know, to, to impact the future of their countries in other ways. So the organizational skill developed by Indian soldier um, in many ways kind of saved lots of lives during a really traumatic and difficult period in the history of the subcontinent. So do you think there needs to be more of a shift then in looking at individual histories or individual motivations? I mean, I suppose the it's kind of the historian's role, isn't it, to, to see to look at the past and discover its complexity and, and to try and explain it in some, in some way. And when the historian does that, usually we find that kind of simple narratives just don't stack up. And um, that we tell a story after the fact to make it comfortable for ourselves. It's a people's war, it was a good war. Um, and we're the good guys and we can move on and be proud. And of course, there's an element of that. And there's a truth in that. But there's also a story out there about upset and horror and sadness and um, people not stepping up at this moment of crisis and people looking f to themselves rather than to the interests of the state. It's disunity as much as, as, as unity. And I suppose that matters if you, if you believe the ordinary person matters. If you believe that, you know, Joe Bloggs can have an effect on history because if you think it's all down to Monty and Churchill, which is, let's be honest, the way the story is usually told, and you know Churchill told the story himself, and that was the way it kind of came out, and we've bought it ever since. And you know Churchill was an extraordinary man, fascinating man, nobody doubts it. But my study of history suggests that it is probably that you know, the young fella in a slit trench who decides on a Thursday at four o'clock when the tanks are rolling in his direction, I'm going to stay here and fight. And that slows down the enemy and makes a difference to the commander a mile, two miles, five miles, 10 miles behind the line who can then has time to send in the reinforcements. And that commander is then the hero, right? We all talk about this, this guy forever. Whereas it's the young fellow in slip trench who says, who might well have died and we never hear of again, who, who enabled that whole thing. And so by exploring the experience of the ordinary soldier through the censorship summaries, um, by giving them credit, I think, where credit's due, history looks a little bit different or even a lot different um, and i hope that you know that story is, is a really positive exciting one for every for every young fella and young woman in anywhere i can make a difference and history seems to say that, that you can that was jonathan fennell fighting the people's war the british and commonwealth armies and the second world war is out now in both the uk and the us published by Cambridge University Press. And don't forget to visit historyextra.com 
for lots more Second World War history. Now, before we go, I'd like to pay tribute to our long-standing producer, Jack Fletcher, who, after six years at the helm of this podcast, is going to be leaving for Pastures New. In the time he's been here, he's produced over 400 episodes and has been instrumental in making this into one of the world's most popular history podcasts. He'll be much missed by everyone here on the team, and we wish him all the best for his upcoming audio adventures. And that is about it for today, except to say that we'll be back, of course, on Thursday, when Nicholas Vincent will be discussing one of history's most infamous monarchs. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future editions. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook, where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, which is full of history articles, quizzes, image galleries and more. Plus, it's where you can download hundreds of previous episodes of this podcast. 